Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. When I got up to preach in the first service, I said to David Carell before I came up and then to Tim Wagner on my way up that I was going to preach on infant baptism and uh, that that they should... They should uh, tolerate me, and I reminded Tim Wagner that when I first became the pastor of this church, my presbytery said to Tim and the elders, now are you going to let him preach his, his doctrinal commitments or not? Because I wasn't in a PCA church, and Tim Wagner said yes, and so I reminded Tim. I said, now remember, you said I could. I want all of you to know I'm going to preach infant baptism this morning. Uh, more at the end than throughout it. But I want you to know that now, because all through this sermon, I want you to think about the degree to which all of us try to, uh, to float like a butterfly through difficult passages of Scripture and difficult doctrinal points of Scripture. All of us tend to get very weasley very squirrely at certain parts of Scripture. And we have our ways of trying to change what Scripture says so that we feel better about it. We'll get into reading the text in a second, but let me tell you about, we used to have an elder here who one day, this elder, he'd come through Campus Crusade. And he said to me, you know, Tim, in the Old Testament, everything was about the land and the flesh. And God's promises were not spiritual in the Old Testament. They were physical. And so that's why circumcision and that's why the promised land. But in the New Testament, things are spiritual. And it's not the flesh and it's not land anymore. Okay? And he was an elder here. And I want that in your brain now as, 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 as we look at Romans uh, chapter 9, verses 6 to 9, all right? This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. But it is not as though the Word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named, that is... It is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. Let us pray. Our Father, we ask that what I say and what all of us think and feel will be acceptable to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we've seen before that here in this point in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul has a difficult job. And he's already started the difficult work back in chapter 2, near the beginning of his letter, when he says this. He says, chapter 2, 28 and 29, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, 
And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is from men. It's not from men, but from God. He is not a Jew's one outwardly, nor is circumcision. That's what's outward in the flesh. It's inward. The theme the Apostle Paul is working on here is the distinction between skin deep and heart deep. Between the superficial and the genuine spiritually. Between the will of man and the will of God. It's a tough distinction for man to hear or submit to as it cuts between son and son. It's an even tougher distinction for woman to hear or submit to, cutting as it does between son and son, daughter and daughter. Not one of us wants to face this distinction when it comes to our children. The New England Puritans didn't want to face this distinction, and so they invented the halfway covenant. Pastor Rob Rayburn, who wrote his paper, Covenant Succession, based on Schenck, he didn't want to face this distinction, and that's why we got covenant succession, and then that's why we got the federal vision. As Doug Wilson said, it's all about the children. Many, many pastors and elders in the PCA and the CRC and other various conservative denominations do not like the distinction, and so they invented all those false parts of doctrine that was called federal vision. All of us, fathers and mothers, can easily find ourselves obstinate and refusing the distinctions the Apostle Paul is teaching here between flesh and spirit, between children of Abraham and children of God, between two is true Israel and false Israel, between circumcision of the flesh and circumcision of the heart, between baptism of the flesh and baptism of the heart, between children of the flesh and children of the promise, God's promise, that is. As we've seen in the recent past going through Romans 9, the Jews in New Testament times and in all times, really, were the same. All the Jews were the same, and yet actually they weren't. How not? Well, they did not trace themselves through Ishmael. Absolutely not. They trace themselves, their lineage, their heritage, through Isaac and... So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were their patriarchs. Not Abraham, Ishmael, and Esau. <laughs> now come on, think about that for a second. Whose father was Ishmael? And who got the promise? Of God to a thousand generations, Abraham got the promise. Whose father was Esau? Isaac. Do you see? And so the Jews at the time of Jesus, the Jews still today, the Jews in the Old Testament under Jeremiah, all of them claimed that they were God's chosen people and that their salvation was certain. On what basis? On the basis that God had been the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. You all with me? Okay? You all with me? 
And all of them knew that they better not say they were saved, they were God's chosen people because they were the descendants of Abraham, Ishmael, and Esau. And yet, the same fathers. And so all of Israel has always understood that when it came to the original patriarchs, God's choice reigned supreme. But then when it came to the next generation, the next generation, the next generation, they had to face their children. And what was going on in their children spiritually, they got all wobbly, you know. And they began to claim that now, back at the beginning, God did some strange things. And those strange things kept them from claiming Ishmael and Isaac, or Esau. But now God is perfectly predictable. And now it's based on lineal descent. It's based on blood. It's based on us being descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Now, I hope all of you realize that we have some major inconsistencies here. How can you perfectly understand the distinction that God sovereignly made between Ishmael and Isaac and between Jacob and Esau and then claim that God doesn't have the authority to do that anymore. Right? Right? And so even though they recognized God had every bit of authority, and it was his perfect right to make a distinction between Ishmael and Isaac, okay, when Jesus comes along, all of a sudden they're like, we have Abraham for our father. And Jesus says, now you have the devil for your father. And they say, we have Moses. And Jesus says, Moses would never have treated me this way. <laughs> They're claiming lineal descent. They're claiming the flesh. They're claiming circumcision as if that trumps God and his choice. And yet they all confess that his choice reigns supreme, distinguishing Isaac and Ishmael, distinguishing between Jacob and Esau. And it just doesn't work. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, look, it's clear the Jews aren't believing. They killed their Messiah. They murdered him. They called his blood down on their heads and the heads of their descendants. And now you're saying that God didn't keep his promises and that you can't trust the word of God? Don't you remember Isaac and Ishmael? They're both sons of Abraham. And in a few verses, he's going to move on to Jacob and Esau. And he's going to quote God saying, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. They're both children, sons of Isaac. And Isaac is the promised one. So the promise did not fail when it distinguished between Isaac and Ishmael. And the promise did not fail when it took the son of the promise, Isaac, and distinguished between his two sons before they'd ever been born. Listen, it is never wise to help God 
escape charges of not being fair or being unreasonable. I remember a man in this church, very, very smart man, the son of a professor who used to go around the country speaking for God on campuses. And this man was in our small group, and he was very, very smart. But when it came to the choice of God, somehow his smartness was nowhere to be seen. Because he came up with all these like philosophical manipulations and and evasions and sophistry to, to try to escape anyone accusing God of being unfair by choosing some people and not choosing others. And it's like, the Bible couldn't be more clear. God chose Isaac. He did not choose Ishmael. They're both sons of Abraham. God seemed to take pleasure in saying, no, it's not going to be the son of the slave woman. It's going to be the son of the free woman. It's not going to be Ishmael. I'll bless him. I'll make him a great nation. But he's not the child of the promise. And so again and again and again, as we go through this passage of the letter to the Romans, we see the Apostle Paul stopping everybody's mouths and their thoughts and their, their overwrought hearts and saying, stop. In verse 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended for Israel, from Israel. And so why is it that we have such difficulty seeing that same principle today with our children? We have children of the flesh. We have children of the spirit. We have children who believe. We have children who don't believe. Every family can see this. If you don't see it immediately in the present generation, just look one generation back. It's obvious. God chooses some and chooses others. And if I were to say to you, forget your family and just look at yourself, you'd say what? You'd say, yeah, that's, that's like, whoo, that's like wacko. I can't for the life of me figure out why God chose me. Isn't that what we would all say? And I'd say, oh, he didn't choose you. You're just the son of godly parents. And you'd laugh. You'd go, <laughs> yikes. <laughs> right, Clinton? You know? As if because of your mother, you know, you're just godly. It's been that easy, hasn't it, Clinton? Yeah, I knew that, yeah. And I mean, I could go around and around and around with you sitting here, and you would all say to me, God, he's the hound of heaven. He came after me, he grabbed me, and he, he lifted me out of the pit that I was sunk in. And he set me on a rock. There is no other member of the body of Jesus Christ than that member. Now, it's right at this point that Baptists, I think, get squirrely. Remember, I I told you I was going to talk about infant baptism. Because the way Baptists handle this is they say, well, 
but I mean, you know, I mean, in the New Testament, it's not based on descent at all. And I say, uh, how about in the Old Testament, was it? And then they're in a hard place because they have to say, well, yes and no. And I say, well, how about no? And they say, well, God chose between Isaac and Ishmael. So that's no. It wasn't just children of the flesh. And I say, okay, how about the yes? Well, God promised that he'd be a God to Abraham and to his children. And I say, so in other words, it was true and it wasn't true, both at the same time, right? Right? You all with me? Or you go the way of this former elder who says, well, no, actually, it was all physical in the Old Testament, but I hope we don't have any of those people here, okay? Because it's obviously not that. You just heard scripture read. It's obvious that in the Old Testament, it was both flesh and spirit. That Israel, not Israel, that children of Abraham, not children of Abraham, that Jew, not Jew, that circumcised, not circumcised. Now, you may be able to get all cosmic about every other distinction, but I hope you know you can't get all cosmic about circumcision. How on earth do you have circumcised, not circumcised? <laughs> you know, if you figure it out, let me know. Now, what's my point? My point is that the way you have circumcision without circumcision is when the sign points to a spiritual reality. And it's not the sign that saves you, but the spirituality. The, the, the thing that the sign points to, the invisible reality, okay? And that invisible reality is given to you not by the circumcision of your father, of your foreskin, but by the circumcision of the Holy Spirit of your heart. You know, as I look around here, I see children who I never thought they'd come to faith. Okay? I'm not real good at predicting it. <laughs> you know? I think was very surprised by what happened to Nate down in Texas. And so thankful to God. And I could keep talking about a bunch of you. <laughs> right? Oh, did I feel hopeless about Wayne? Any, any of the rest of you ever feel hopeless about Wayne? Come on, Doug, raise your hand. Come on, Stephen, you better raise your hand. <laughs> and then you look at the fruit. How about John? Well, he was a real standout. You know, in high school, he was a, he was a paragon of virtue and respect for his mother, right? <laughs> and how about Phil when he showed up with his dog? <laughs> oh, my goodness. And then God, in his kindness, chose with some to circumcise the heart. And you say, well, it's not circumcision anymore. And I say, okay, it's baptism. Some, God has baptized their heart. You remember that when the Pharisees came to Jesus, I mean, to John the Baptist to be baptized, you remember what he said to them? 
You brood of vipers, who told you to flee the wrath to come? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. You remember when Simon got saved and believed in Jesus the magician. You remember what happened. You remember that Simon believed and was baptized. And then he saw all the sort of magic happening under the ministry of the apostles. And he offered money from his, uh, from his wealth. He offered money if he could have the same power as they had. You remember this. So now we're not talking about circumcision anymore. We're talking about baptism. And you remember what happened. He asked if he could buy this. And we read that when he saw the Holy Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, Acts 8, verse uh, 18, he offered the money saying, give this authority to me as well so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. He's baptized. He's baptized. How could the Apostle Paul ever be so faithless as to say, if possible, you may be forgiven? And you understand the problem here. The problem is they just baptized him. He just put his faith in Jesus. And it wasn't infant baptism. It was believer baptism. But apparently, because you're baptized doesn't mean that you have the danger of God damning you. Do you understand me? Not all circumcision is circumcision, and not all baptism is baptism. We see the same thing in Jude, verses 12 and 13, where this is what is said. These are men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts. So, When they got together and they had love feasts in the New Testament church, there were some hidden reefs there. These men are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear. Caring for themselves, they are clouds without water, carried along by winds. They are autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, Wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam. Wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. We have no question what that is. They're baptized. They're eating the Lord's Supper. They're at the agape feasts. And they are men for whom God has reserved darkness forever. Okay? Do not protect God from charges of injustice by saying that the Old Testament was flesh and the New Testament is spirit. No. No, no, no. Do not protect God from charges of injustice by saying that in the Old Testament, the promise was familial by descent. But in the New Testament, there are no such promises. 
There are two. The Apostle Paul said to the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. Okay? Okay. And thy house. And so is God's word broken between... If we found out that all the people in his house who were baptized did not produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Do you understand? It's like, no, no, they had to all believe if they were all baptized. And I say, okay, so in other words, they only baptized those who believed, and some didn't believe right then, but believe later, and so they baptized them later, all right? Let's just say that's what happened. Doesn't say it, but let's say it happened. Okay, take the ones that were baptized that very night when the promise was given, and those who... It dragged out a while, and they were baptized later when there was more belief-like, okay? Now, here's my question for you, and I've asked this a lot of times of Credo Baptists. Whose baptisms take, take better? The baptisms of Baptists or Presbyterians? And you say, well, what on earth do you mean by that? And I say, well... When at the end of life you look at the fruit and you make a judgment as to whether that person had true faith, whose baptisms are more strongly correlated with faith at the end of life? The baptism of Baptists, the baptisms of Presbyterians, the baptisms of those who baptize infants, or the baptism of those who baptize adolescents? (laughs) That may have been a little bit passive-aggressive. Or another way of saying it is, who's more of an adolescent? An infant or a 14-year-old? Another way of saying it is, who's more of an infant? A 14-year-old or an infant? (laughs) In other words, I'm trying to point out the similarity between an early adolescent and an infant. So here's my point. If we're all trying to protect God from ever putting the sign of baptism on somebody who doesn't truly believe, and I were to go through our sanctuary right now and ask all of you who are Baptists or credo-Baptists to tell me how many of your children who are baptized as adults have given evidence the rest of their lives of true faith. Okay? I wouldn't do it because it would be mean and it would leave you depressed. And so my question to you is, why don't you just be humble and admit you have no better way of determining the true faith of an adolescent who's baptized and an infant who's baptized? I tell you this, both the parent, the mother or father who baptizes an infant and the mother and father who escorts their child to the elders and has them baptized as adolescents, both of them, are you with me? They both do that, believing that God will keep his promises to them about their children. I deny that those who baptize adolescents have any less faith in God working through them in their children than the people who baptize infants. 
And I guarantee you that when a two-year-old who's been baptized and a 15-year-old who's been baptized die, say in a car wreck, I deny that the parents of the 15-year-old who was baptized at 13 and of the two-year-old who was baptized as a newborn, I deny that either sets of parents of those two deaths are any less committed to the covenant promises of God to them and to their children. And that's certainly true in this church. I have never buried the child of a Baptist who not deep inside of them are claiming God's promises for their children. And so you think, well, they're inconsistent. I say, no, they're consistent. You say, well, how can that be consistency? I say, because God did give promises to the children in the Old and New Covenant. Those promises haven't changed. In the Old Covenant, God had every right to make unqualified promises about Abraham's descendants and then to distinguish between Isaac and Ishmael and Jacob and Esau. And his promises weren't broken. And that's all that happens in the New Covenant. God gives us promises, and those promises often are the only thing that keep us going as mothers. And it is right for us to claim those promises. And it is also right for us to know in our mind that God is sovereign. Listen, I've been your pastor for almost exactly a quarter century now. And all of you know, I don't preach harassing you about infant baptism. I just don't do it. But I just, this morning, this text, children of the promise. So do New Testament children not have the promise? No, they have the promise. So the Old Testament, do they have the promise? Yes, they had the promise. You remember what God said? He's promised that Sarah would be the one through whom he fulfilled his promises. And not Hagar. It would be the free woman, not the slave woman. And then you go to the New Testament. Who told you to flee the wrath of come? They were circumcised. How can he talk that way to circumcised Jews? Jesus said, no, your father's the devil. How can he talk to that, to, to sons of Abraham? And then these, these, these men at your love feasts, God has reserved eternal darkness. And then what about Hebrews 6? They've tasted of the Holy Spirit, but having turned away, there is no forgiveness. There is no repentance left for them. And all through Scripture, we see unbelievable promises given to men who are cast off. Think of Judas spending three years with Jesus. Every single time. What do you think Jesus was doing? That's not for you, Judas. (laughs) You know, every time he gives any promises, he said, now Judas, that's not a promise to you. 
Judas had the, the priceless gift of three years with God incarnate. And he chose money. And it wasn't because he lacked the promise. It was because he lacked the promise. And you see, we just said it wasn't. I say, the promise and the promise are two different things. One promise is indiscriminate. One promise is unbelievably discriminating. And we call that discrimination election. (laughs) It's God's choice. And listen, all of you know that when it comes to God's choice, it is your greatest joy to look at your life and see how God snatched you. And none of you are talking about how zealous you were for good works and so God finally noticed, (laughs) you know. I mean, come on, it's a joke. One of the sad things about the church today is that there really is no respect for authority in the church now. And I used to think that you could fight for authority by talking about Adam being created first and then Eve. And I might have spent 20 years trying to teach that, but then I realized it was just stupid. The real problem isn't that nobody believes in the authority of Adam, the man. The real problem is none of us believe in the authority of God. The real problem is we don't fear God. And because we don't fear God, we don't submit to his word. We pick and choose. We don't like what the Bible says here or there. We're just like, well, that's that and this is this. And it's like, honestly, seriously? That's how we're going to approach Scripture. We're just going to say, well, I don't like that. And of course, at this point, as I'm preaching, I immediately think of my father. And my father-in-law. You know. I mean, my father... My mother gave him a good run for his money, let me tell you. She was German, (laughs) you know, and she was bright and, and, and she could argue. But when my father's jowls began to shake, every mouth was stopped. Every mouth was stopped. 
And if you had asked me as a little kid at that time whether I was looking at my father or at God, I think I would have said both. Not that I thought my father was divine. I didn't think that. But at those moments, you realized that it was God with whom you had to do and not your father. And you say, why? Because the principle was divine? And I say, no, because the principle was authority. You know something? My daddy never talked about authority. You know, he never talked about it. He didn't write tweets about how he decided he was going to be an authority and he realized he hadn't been an authority, but now he was going to be an authority and he was, he was, he was upping his game. <laughs> oh my goodness. My father was an authority. And he didn't need to talk about it. Right? You all with me? And even my mother, when his jowls began to shake, she was silent. And he never had to tell her to be quiet. And he never told us to be quiet. He just shook his jowls. And it wasn't that we were worried he'd hit us. I actually grew up wishing my father would hit me a little more. And it wasn't because he'd start calling us names. He never called nobody names. It was because he was God's fatherhood resident in our home. And so we didn't think of crossing the word of God. I remember very clearly my, my first or second year at seminary and there was a scandal that one of our professors was using what is known as redaction criticism. Stephen, do you want to define it quickly? Yeah. So redaction criticism is trying to figure out the origin of a particular text and then say who must have written it and why. And so it just completely eviscerates scripture of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. All right? And one of our professors had written a commentary and it was a big scandal because he'd used redaction criticism. And our seminary had a theology professor named Roger Nicole who was Mr. Inerrancy. In the Evangelical Theological Society, nobody was more vigilant to defend inerrancy. He was a feminist, and he was Mr. Inerrancy. And so my father wrote a column, and so what happened was this professor, Roger Nicole, called the Evangelical Theological Society to discipline this man for violating his commitment to inerrancy by getting into redaction criticism, okay? And then my father wrote a column basically opposing the uh, Evangelical Theological Society for disciplining this professor. Now, I'm not going to ask you to think about why my dad did that, except to say this to you. 
neither my father nor my father-in-law pushed the doctrine of inerrancy. And you know, my father didn't trust the people who did. Now, I just told you Roger Nicole was a feminist. He denied, by the end of his life, any authority, the husband over the wife, the father over the family, and any male aspect to authority. And yet that seems to be pretty clear in Scripture. But he was Mr. Inerrancy, right? And do you know what my dad would say to me? My dad would say to me, I don't want to hear anything about your doctrine of inspiration of Scripture. What I want to know about is the authority of Scripture. The authority of Scripture. Do you obey and believe God's Word? Don't tell me how you're squirrely about man and woman. And so as I've gotten older, and I used to think that authority was a function of feminism, and that the rebellion was all feminist fault. I don't even think that anymore. I think that all of us, men and women together, are rebels against authority. We have no respect for authority, and mostly that's because none of us have ever seen the authority of God in our fathers. I remember the night that Mr. Taylor went to bed, and he got up, and he went out for breakfast with one of his sons-in-law. It was at Christmas time. And I'm not going to bother going into the details, but let me tell you, of the 20 or 30 or 40 of us in that house, we all got together every Christmas. Every one of us was on tender hooks about that meeting. It was like, Ho! Ho! Because the man he went out to breakfast with was a Wheaton graduate. And a Dallas Theological Seminary graduate! And the sin was awful. And so you know what happened? We don't know what happened, but we know what happened because when Mr. Taylor got home with him after breakfast, one of Mr. Taylor's eyes was filled with blood. It's just filled with blood. I was so, so proud of my father-in-law. Shortly after that, that man moved out of the home that he had been living in. And I've never seen him again. Don't you help God. Don't you try to clean up things that you think God missed. Don't you try to clean up his Bible. Don't you patronize the texts of Scripture. 
God doesn't need your help. <laughs> what God needs is for us to love him as he is. As he is. And when we love God as he is, and you say, well, how is he? I say, well, read your Bible. The words inside are true and reliable. The B-I-B-L-E, now that's the book of, for me, I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. That's who God is. And when I see in you a fear of God and a submission to his word, that is the fruit in keeping with repentance. And our Savior's rule is by their fruit ye shall know them. And the man that has faith in God and his word and is willing to oppose his son-in-law and his wife and his pastors and his elders and his great-great-grandfather, if the word of God is at stake, that is a man that is demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit. And yes, you may quote that back to me anytime you want. I would rather be a liar a hundred times over than to have you ever think that God does not keep his word. I'm, I'm happy for you to tell me I don't keep my word, but don't you ever say that about God. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will feed us from your word and that we will be like little birds whose mouths are open and heads are back, absolutely trusting it to be the bread of life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.